Well, good morning. Week 13 of 1 John. We are going to be in chapter 5 this morning, verses 1 through 5. And uh, Lord willing, we'll wrap up over the next couple of weeks um, and end our time together in John's first letter. Would you join me in prayer as we begin this morning? Father, thank you so much for giving us a revelation of yourself, of your will, of your heart, of your acts in history um, that help us to know you, that help us to understand our need for a Savior, that help us to identify exactly who that Savior that you have provided is, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our only hope in life and in death. So we pray that he would be glorified in our midst this morning, that he would be exalted, Spirit, that you would come and take this word about him and drive it into every single one of our hearts in such a way that the light is brighter, the sun is more precious, the gospel is more trusted, and that sin and the world and the devil become more and more despised. So Jesus, be exalted in our midst. Draw near as we speak of you this morning. We don't want this merely to be the words of a man, but take your word and preach it to us this morning and be our chief shepherd as you, as you exalt your greatness and your glory and your meekness and your love this morning in this text. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, the theme is overcoming the world. What does that mean and how does that happen? That's the phrase that John uses here in the middle of our text in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. Look there, he says, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. What is that? What does it mean? How does it happen? That's where we're going this morning. Uh, the world, the theme of the world, the, the use of the term the world shows up 23 times in John's letter. It's a, it's a big big theme. It's a, and I don't think we spent a whole lot of time talking about it because if you go back and look at every single one of those times John uses the phrase the world, it's, it's different a lot of times. It's, there's not a universal application of what he means by world. Sometimes when he uses the term the world, he's just talking about the physical world. Like for instance in 1 John chapter 3 verse 13, if you want to look there, 1 John 3 13, he's using the world just as in a physical sense. He says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Now keep going, verse 15, verse 16, then verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God dwell? If anyone has this, the world's goods, he's talking about the stuff that's in the world, food and clothing and things like that, the sort of needs that we have to exist in this world. But oftentimes... When John uses the phrase the world, he's using it in a spiritual sense, not a physical sense. And so we're going to talk about that dimension because that is the main dimension he, he uses it in. And so two points to the sermon this morning. We want to talk about the ruler of the world and the rescue from the world. Now, when I say, first of all, the ruler of the world, you might be thinking, well, that's God. God's the ruler of the world. And of course, that's true. But that's not all that's true. There is another lowercase r ruler in the world. He's not the ultimate ruler, but he is ruling and reigning in a certain sense. And as John identifies him here and throughout his letter, it's the spirit of Antichrist, which is driven by 
the capital A Antichrist himself, Satan. And so we read in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, as we'll get to in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, how does this evil one, in whom the whole world is controlled, how does he exert his rule? Well, John gives us three specific ways throughout his letter that this evil one exerts his rule in the world. And I want to talk about those briefly. Three ways the evil one rules. First of all, through deception. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. We've been here and looked at this text. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Look at verse 3. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So Satan is trying to deceive, and he's trying to deceive through false teaching to try to get people to not see and not confess that Jesus Christ is truly from God. So that's the first way he exerts his rules through deception. Second way, opposition. Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That's a great reality, isn't it, to be the children of God? But look at how the children of God are treated. Continuing in chapter 3, verse 1. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So the world doesn't recognize the children of God, but that's not their only posture. Look at verse 13 of chapter 3. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Hates you. So there is opposition, not just deception, but there's also opposition. But perhaps those two ways, uh, deception and opposition, while those are huge, there's another way, and that is through seduction. Satan rules the world through seduction. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. This is where John writes to the Christians, knowing that Satan rules the world through seduction, says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So I think we get a picture of what this world is that John is talking about. It's a realm that's ruled by Satan that exists to deceive and oppose and seduce people away from Christ. Tim Keller summarizes by saying, the world refers to the climate created by sinful humanity as it stands in opposition to God and his ways. It has the power to influence us to rebel against God, his laws, and his purposes. So then, the world is something that must be overcome if we are going to have any hope. Which means that if, we, if the world has to be overcome, it means something, doesn't it? It means we're trapped. It means by nature we're trapped. Now, there's other texts that illustrate this. I want to turn you to a few of them. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 
chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 24 and 25. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we'll actually go through 26, 24 through 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them, that is the opponents of Christians, repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they, that is opponents of Christians, who we all were, even if we weren't directly killing Christians like Saul of Tarsus was, we nevertheless, naturally, as we were born, we were born in opposition to God. We may may have expressed that opposition in profound indifference, but nonetheless, we were opposed. We were not 100% for Jesus, living, laying our lives down for him. And this is where all men naturally find themselves, and women and boys and girls. But what's the hope? Verse 26, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's every human being outside of Christ, ensnared by the devil, captured by him to do his will. And most of the time, he wants that to be a covert capture. He doesn't want to be noticed. He wants to be on the background in the operating system of the human life. He doesn't want to show himself. He just wants to maintain that seduction, maintain that deception, maintain that opposition or indifference in the heart and soul of people. And so the only hope is that God would grant us repentance so that we could escape him. Another text, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, also speaks of the devil and his work in our lives naturally before we come to Christ. It says in chapter 4, verse 4, Paul writes, In their case, that is the case of those who aren't believing in Christ, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, that's what he's trying to do, deceive, ensnare, seduce, blind us from seeing the beauty of Jesus. One more text, Ephesians chapter 2 familiar text to us, one of the favorite texts of many of us in this room, no doubt, for good reason. Second Timothy, or Ephesians, sorry, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is a terrible situation. This is what the ruler of the world does. He exerts his rule by deceiving and opposing and seducing people, trapping them, blinding them to the glory of Jesus, And you know, he's been doing this for a really, really, really long time. Several thousand years. You know, it's interesting that when we read 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, where it says, for all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. You know where John got that from? Genesis 3. I'm going to prove it to you. It's the same language. 
Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 and look at what Satan was doing with Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan has always had one song. Second verse, same as the first. Genesis chapter 3. And notice in verse 6, as he is seducing and opposing and seeking to deceive our original parents, notice what he says to them. So he says in verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and that it was the delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, pride of life, she took of its fruit and ate. That's where John got it from. That's why John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, that the world... The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is something that we are to not love, that we are to seek to resist. And what is Satan actually doing in Genesis 3? He's trying to make the commandments of God burdensome, right? He's trying to get Adam and Eve to believe that following God is a burden. It's a burden. It's not joyful. It's difficult. He's keeping things from you. Good things that you should want and have and desire. The world is everything that seeks to make the commandments of God burdensome. Which is why John says in our text this morning, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, his commandments are not burdensome. Because he's trying to help us understand the way Satan operates. The world tempts us to believe that obeying God's commandments is not as satisfying as disobeying God's commandments. And there is something in us by nature that loves to agree with this. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 5. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. See, this is, a natural, this is natural human beings. From the world, speak as the world, the world listens to them. Why does the world listen to people from the world? Because they like what they hear. They like it. They like they like the messages of independence from God. They like the messages of self-sovereignty. They like the messages of you can achieve happiness on your own terms. They like that message because that message is exactly the message that Satan wants people to hear and believe. The problem then is inward and outward. See, naturally, we, are, we have both an inward and an outward problem. We have an internal, subjective problem and an objective problem. What's that? So internally, 
We are slaves to our sin by nature. We want to hear exactly what the world is teaching us. Believe it or not, we want to be deceived. We want to be seduced. We're sitting ducks for it. We're waiting for it. Please give it to me. And as a result of that, we are accountable to God. And as we've already read in various passages, the wrath of God is against such things. And so we have to contend with God for our disobedience, but it's a disobedience that we naturally enjoy. So if the world is going to be overcome, we need an objective work of God and a subjective work of God. There's got to be something done outside of us to free us from Satan's tyranny and something done inside of us that makes us want to be free. And so this text tells us this morning how to get there and how many of us got there. See, you, can, you could be a Christian for decades, which so many of you people, in the, brothers and sisters in this room, have been. You've been walking with Christ a really long time. But it's really important to revisit how you became a Christian. It's really important to revisit exactly what did God do for me? Exactly what did he do for me and in me to help me overcome the world? And this text tells us how we got there. The essence of overcoming the world get this, is unburdening the commandments of God. That's the essence of overcoming the world. If the commandments of God can be unburdened, and get this, they have to be unburdened objectively and subjectively. The key to overcoming the world is to get us to a place where obeying God becomes a joy and not a burden. Because until then, we're slaves to the world. But when that happens, when the commandments of God become a joy and not a burden, we overcome the world. We overcome the world. So that's the first point. That's a little biblical theology of Satan and his work and how how he manifests his work in the world as the ruler of the world. So we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at the rescue from the world. And I've got two points under this main point. God's work for us and God's work in us. So in order to be rescued from the world, we need God to do something for us and we need God to do something in us. Let's look first of all at God's work for us. How is God objectively going to rescue us from the world so that we are able to overcome Satan and his deception and opposition and seduction? Well, first of all, Christ comes into the world and overcomes for us overcomes for us. See, we can't overcome by ourselves. He has to come and overcome. He has to come as the new man, as the new representative, as the new humanity, and overcome Satan in our place. And he does this, right? We see it most vividly in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is being tempted by the devil and he's resisting him over and over and over again. By the way, That passage is not meant, first of all, to teach you how to handle temptation. Sometimes we preach it that way, right? See, Jesus was tempted this way. You need to resist the devil. You need to quote the word of God. Is that true? Sure. It's not the main point. The main point, as you read that, is praise God that I have someone who defeated Satan. Praise God that I have a Savior. Praise God that though he come to me and tempt me and I fall and struggle, there is one whom he came to and he was resisted firmly decisively 
And so we see this in 1 John as well. Let's look at a couple of passage, passages. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. We're sort of revisiting this morning some of the passages we've looked at to try to tie them together under this theme of overcoming the world. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In other words, that we might overcome. That we might overcome the world. Because remember, according to Ephesians 2, we're dead in trespasses and sins. And the Son of God is sent into the world so that we might live. Look at verse 14 of 1 John chapter 4. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Well, how did He do that? Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse 10. Look, or should say look back at verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is the atoning sacrifice that averts the wrath of God from us. He uses that same word in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. We won't read that text right now. Look at chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. That's us by nature. Before we come to Christ, we make a practice of sinning. It's our whole way of life. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So why do we make a practice of sinning? Because we're of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, which is to keep people from not making a practice of sinning. Look at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. That's another way of saying no one makes a practice of sinning because they've overcome the world. And they can't keep on sinning because they've been born of God. So this is a result of Jesus coming, right? To destroy the works of the devil. It's the only hope we have. Look back at chapter 3, verse 5. You know that he appeared in order, he appeared, Jesus appeared, in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. So what happened as a result of Christ dying on the cross, propitiating the wrath of God against our sin, releasing us from the captivity of slavery to sin, which kept us enslaved to the devil. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And then verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, as Christ is, so also are we in this world. A couple of more passages on this. Let's bounce out of 1 John for a second and look at a couple of other examples in the New Testament of Christ's cross work and how he delivers us from Satan as a result of it. Colossians chapter 2 first. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15. One of my favorite texts in the New Testament. We'll start reading at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's us, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What was the result of that? Look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities 
and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So we defeat Satan in the cross of Jesus. Let's look at one more passage in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, again, describes for us the work of Jesus in relationship to Satan and how his death releases us from Satan's captivity. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that is, he became a man, that through death, his death on the cross, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Verse 15, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So, the commandments of God are no longer a burden for us. Why? Christ has fulfilled the commandments of God for us. You know, what, you know that's great liberty to live? Knowing that you don't have to be the second Adam? A second Adam is way better than a second chance. You don't need a second chance. You need a second Adam. And we have him. Christ has fulfilled the law for us and died to appease God's wrath for all of our breaking of his commandments. So if we obey God's commands because we fear we will be rejected or punished or have God's love withdrawn from us if we do not obey, you know what that is? Burdensome. It's burdensome. To know that if, if I don't live up to God's perfect standard of righteousness, I risk being rejected or punished or having God's love withdrawn. But you know why that is not a reality for you as a, as a child of God? Because Christ already fulfilled the law for you. He kept all of the commandments for you. So his work for you then frees you to obey him because he loves you. Not because... You're trying to get him to love you. And this is why, as we saw in our text last week, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And then in verses 18 and 19, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. You notice how Hebrews chapter 2 said that the devil keeps us ensnared through fear, through fear, of death specifically there. Well, what did Christ's work do? Free us from fear. Free us from the paralyzing fear that we might be abandoned by God. There is no fear in love, John says, 4.18, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment. Christ took our punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love, we love, verse 19, because he first loved us. See, this is gospel, gospel, gospel motivation. And this is how Satan gets crushed in people's lives. Because Satan is going to come to us and say, you haven't obeyed. You have not fulfilled the law. You have not kept. Remember what Adam and Eve did? You've done that too. Remember what God did to them? Kicked them out of the garden for one sin? How many sins have you committed? More than one, I bet. How many sins did it take for God to kick Adam and Eve out of his presence and sentence them to death? Just one. How many sins have we committed? 
but then we say back to him, I think there is another man who came and he lived in my place and he died in my place, taking God's wrath and judgment and punishment for my sins and fulfilling all the requirements of God on my behalf. I've trusted in him. You see, Satan, you've got, the, you've got it all wrong. You're acting like, you're speaking to me like my trust is in myself. It is not in myself. It is completely and wholly and absolutely and forever in the, in the work and righteousness of another. Upon a life I did not live and a death I did not die, his life, his death, I stake my whole eternity. And Satan says, got, got nothing, got nothing. Can't call God's justice into question. Can't call our sin into question because they've been reconciled in the work of another. So, and the commandments of God are unburdened because now we get to, we get to, we get to, we get to obey God. And it's not a slavish obedience because it's an obedience that's grounded in and rooted in love for him based upon what he's done for us. That's John's whole argument in 1 John chapter 4 and chapter 3 and chapter 2 and chapter 1. His love, the love of God being demonstrated to us and for us that causes us to respond in a love relationship toward him. And therefore, the commandments of God are freed from burden. Listen, when someone gives you an A-plus on a test that you didn't take but counts for you in the grade book, you really appreciate that. You want to find that student and give him a Christmas gift. Who did this for me? And all of a sudden, the burden of the test is completely removed. The test you feared to take, the test you weren't prepared to take, the test you knew you would fail. You walk into the class that morning and the teacher or professor says to you, you don't have to take the test. And you say, why? Because so-and-so took it for you. Well, why does what they did count for me? I don't, it's just the way I set it up. Just trust me, okay? We don't have to understand it and explain it all. This is how how the professor chose to operate the class. And he said, wow, can I take the test now? You know, it's like, I just want to see how well. I mean, it's a totally different. It's not a burden anymore. It's It's a joy. And so that's the first part. That's God's work in us and how God's work, or sorry, God's work for us, and how God's work for us in Christ unburdens the commandments of God. Because now, guess what? You can go to completely to heaven and enjoy eternal bliss in the presence of God forever through an imperfect, disobedient, sinful life. <laughs> That's the good news of the gospel, that I do not have to keep God's commandments perfectly to be accepted by God. Christ has kept God's commandments perfectly and I'm accepted in him. If I trust him, if my faith is placed exclusively and only in him. But that's not the only thing that we need to be freed so that we overcome the world, right? Because that's objective. That's in history. That's something that God did. But remember I said, we have both an objective and a subjective problem. By nature, we feel the commandments of God to be burdensome and we don't want to have anything to do with God. When we hear of a biblical sexual ethic, when we hear of the requirements of Jesus for his disciples, we say, no, thank you. By nature, that's all we all do. No, thank you. No, 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 no. Now, if he wants to give me, can, now, Jesus, can I fashion you in my image? Can I kind of 
mold and shape you to be kind of the Jesus I want you to be, I'll believe in you all day long. There are lots of people doing that. Claiming Jesus authorized their lifestyle. My Jesus would never tell me to do that. It's because your Jesus doesn't exist. But we all want to do we all want a Jesus like that by nature. So how do we how do we get the commandments of God unburdened? Well, this is what our text talks about this morning, and this is where we're gonna spend the rest of our time. I got three things, and they're all gonna come immediately out of 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. I want you to see here God's work in us and how God's work in us frees us to overcome the world. That is unburdening the commandments of God so that we want to follow him. First of all, the new birth. The new birth leads to faith in Jesus. Look at verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 4. Everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. Everyone. Everyone everyone. So what's the key? Being born of God. Look again at verse 4. This is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. Okay, so let's talk about that. Born of God, our faith. How, which is it? Look at verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Wait, John. You said in verse 4, Everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. And then you said in verse 5, everyone who believes in Jesus overcomes the world. See, you're contradicting yourself. Which is it? It's both. It's both. Why? Because everyone born of God believes. Look at verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. They're, they're together. How do you know who's born again? Who's believing? Who's believing? If you're believing, you've been born of God. If you believe in Christ, you're born of God. The two are absolutely inseparable. If God gives us life, we will believe. And if we believe, it's because God gave us life. So the first, the first need of us is the new birth. We need to be led to faith in Jesus, and we need to be born again. So what does it mean to be born of God? It means to be given the Spirit in such a way that we experience the love of God that leads us to trust in Christ. I could take you to the text in 1 John. I'm not going to do it because I don't have time. But that's what the new birth is. It's the Holy Spirit opening up our eyes to see the beauty, reliability, trustworthiness, and glorious hope of Jesus Christ for us. And when our eyes are opened, we are no longer, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, blinded by the God of this age. Why? Because we've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And God who said, let light shine out of darkness, Genesis 1, made his light, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, when we were following the prince of this world and the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air and we were slaved, but God made us alive. Ephesians 2, 4, by grace you have been saved and seated us at the right hand of God. He made us alive. According to 2 Timothy chapter 2, which we looked at earlier, that God has bound us and ensnared us. God has granted us repentance. We might escape the snare of the devil. That's all what it means to be born of God. The new birth happens as we're brought into contact with the gospel and the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and our understandings and our hearts to receive it. 
So the first effect of this new birth is that we see and receive God and his son and work and his will as supremely beautiful and valuable. That's what faith is. Faith is believing and receiving God and his son's work as supremely beautiful and valuable. To be born of God means that God has quickened our hearts so that we are awakened to God's value. He gives us a desire to love and serve him rather than hate him, however covert that hatred may be, and rebel against him. So the first thing that we, what must happen is that we must see that Christ is more valuable than anything the world is offering us, and that comes through the new birth. Let me show you an illustration. I want to take you to a parable that Jesus told, told a one-verse parable that illustrates everything I'm talking about right now. It's what it means to become a Christian, what it means to come into the kingdom. Look at Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And verse 44. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like treasure in a field, hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus says, that's the kingdom of God right there. It is finding in Jesus a treasure so valuable that you're willing to give up anything you have to give up to get it. And why does he give it up? Because it's a burden. He says in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. If you don't receive Christ joyfully, you don't receive Christ. Christ is, a, is received with joy. I mean, think about it when you receive Christ. Wasn't it like the best thing that ever happened to you? I'm not saying that it was met with overcoming cartwheels. It didn't have to. It could have been. In some of y'all's cases, I know it was. But you just, you, you heard this gospel. It finally, maybe you've been hearing it for years and years and years, but you finally heard it, you know? You heard it. It wasn't just, yeah, I've been in church or I've, been exposed to that or I've read some things or heard some things. But you actually, wait, wait, G, who? Who? Jesus did this for me? And enjoy, you receive it. So that's how the new birth leads to faith in Jesus. That's God's work in us. He makes the work of Christ valuable. He makes what Christ did objectively for us, subjectively wanted by us, which is an amazing gift of God. It's, it's, it's more expression that God loves us. See, it's one thing for God just to say, here, I've given my son for you. Here, those of you who want it, come and take him. Here's the problem. None of us do by nature. None of us do. So God comes and loves us to the lovely one. He has to shepherd us to the shepherd. And that's what he does in the new birth. Number two, so the new birth leads to faith in Jesus. Secondly, faith in Jesus leads to love for God. Faith in Jesus leads to love for God. See, faith in Christ is more than just intellectual agreement. It has a new love that's built into it. Look at verse 1 again, chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever's been born of him. You would expect him to say, Everyone who believes, 
you expect it to read like this. Look back at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who believes the Father believes whoever has been born of him. That's what you would expect to read because he's been talking about faith. He's been talking about belief. Why does he throw this love in? Why does he say in verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father? Because faith has love built into it. Faith issues in love. Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith working through love. Faith has love built into it, and specifically here, love for the Father. So faith leads to love for God. Love is the driver here. See, because faith-driven love is what overcomes the world by breaking the enslaving power of the world to be our supreme value in love. Faith breaks the spell of the world's enchantment because now we have something more attractive, more beautiful, more worth surrendering to than what the world is offering us. I want you to see this again. Let's, let's illustrate it. Look at Hebrews 11. There's plenty of this illustrated throughout Hebrews 11. Um, but one of the most stark and beautiful is the example of Moses given Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. And Lord willing, we're starting Exodus in January. And I'm excited to get into that amazing book of the Bible with you um, in the new year. So we're going to be looking at the life of Moses and, and the, the, the story of all stories in the book of Exodus. But look here at Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They were, they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, look at this, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Refused this position of privilege and honor. Why? Look what he did instead, verse 25. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, what got him to do that? I mean, he's the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He has a life of privilege and prestige. He's got the retirement we all want. I mean, good grief. Egyptian empire. No, I think I'm going to take a hard job. I think I'm going to go into the inner city. I think I'm going to go live among the people of God and be mistreated with them when I could be the son at Pharaoh's right hand. What causes you to do that? Look at verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. He said, when I balance the, the, the cash in the scales, son of Pharaoh's daughter, mistreated along with the people of God, it goes in terms of value and worth. That's that means he was driven by love for God. Evidently, that was not a burden for him. That was not a burden for him to give all that up to go be mistreated with the people of God. And it was not a burden because he had experienced the new birth and he trusted God and he loved God. Finally, love for God leads to keeping the commandments of God. So we've seen a new birth leading to faith in Jesus which leads to love for God which leads to keeping the commandments of God. When God does that in us, we've overcome the world. Because like I said, the overcoming of the world is the, or the, the world is the burdening of the commandments of God. And if the commandments of God can now be kept by us from our hearts with love toward God, the world is overcome. And this is exactly what John says 
happens to us. He says in verse three, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Why are his commandments not burdensome according to John? Because you love God. If you love God, you're not burdened by his commands. Verse four, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So if the commandments of God are not burdensome, what are they? They're desirable. They're desirable. Now, lest I think or preach perfection or that this is just a simple thing, it's not a simple thing. But here's the reality, Christian. Deep down in your heart, at the deepest level of who you are, the commandments of God are so desirable you can't stand it. Deep down, because God's seed abides in you. And you know it when you sin. Because when you sin, you hate it. And you want to just kick yourself because of your sin. Why? Why, after all these years? Why have I not learned? See, you know why? Because deep, deep down in your heart and soul, you love God. They're desirable. So what you have to do in your fight with sin is follow your deepest desires. Follow the, des- the deepest desire of who you are as a born-again child of God. And that means that you love God and that you admire God and you value God and you desire God. And his will truly is your delight and it's not a burden. Listen, God has nothing but good for you in mind, brother and sister. His commandments, according to Deuteronomy 10, are for your good. And faith then, as we leave this service in just a moment, faith must say to every temptation of this world, no, be gone. There is a true and lasting satisfaction found elsewhere. God has loved me with an infinite love. He promises to work everything together for my good. He withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly, nothing you offer can compare to the joy of his fellowship now and the glory to be revealed hereafter. World, you have lost your power on me. I have become the glad, glad child of a good, good father. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And when we experience otherwise, it's not the yoke of Christ we're carrying. It's not the yoke of Christ. Because Jesus said his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So let's, with renewed confidence this morning, brothers and sisters, resist the devil and he will flee from us. Let us draw near to God and he will draw near to us. Let us again come, you who are weary and heavy laden. Jesus says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly of heart and you'll find rest for your souls. Let's do that again this morning. Let's let's refresh that. Let's come to him even as we come to sing Team, you can come on up as we come to sing. Let's do that. Let's say, Jesus, you're better. Jesus, you're true. Jesus, no good thing do you withhold from me. Jesus, you're my treasure. Jesus, you're my hope. Jesus, you're my love. Please conform my heart to yours. Help me. I'm a weak and needy child. And you know what? He'll always take that. He'll always take that. That's what it means to receive the kingdom. We keep coming back to him as a child. Let's stand and pray and then we'll sing.
Father, how grateful we are to you for all that you have done for us and in us through the work of Christ and your Holy Spirit to enable us to overcome the world. We acknowledge that we don't believe this a lot of the time. And we need you to remind us through your word continually of who we are, what you've made us to be, and what we're called to do and how we're called to respond in light of this. May this sermon this morning, this time in your word, be another piece in that puzzle to move us forward and make us whole. Thank you for the glorious truths that we've got to meditate on this morning. Thank you for the great, great salvation. How can we neglect such a great salvation? Help us not to drift. Help us to hold fast to you. Hold on to us, Jesus, so that we'll hold on to you. Love us profoundly so that we will keep loving you. You are the great shepherd. Carry us forward. In your name we pray, amen.